0: This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by the Arizona Theater Company.
1: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. Author S.E. Hinton's novel The Outsiders in 1967 became the blueprint for an era of socially conscious fiction about the secretive life of the American teenager. On this week's special show, I asked three guests with literary backgrounds to join me in taking a closer look at what young adult books like The Chocolate War, I Am the Cheese, and Confessions of a Teenage Baboon still have to say to readers of all ages. That's next here on Arizona Spotlight. My first guest, Juanita Havel, hails from Southern Illinois originally, but now happily calls Sanoida her home. Her career writing for children began in the 1980s and includes poetry, picture books, and middle-grade novels. She's also taught writing, In our conversation, Juanita Havel looks back at how young adult fiction began as a genre, one that filled in the gap that started where children's books left off.
0: The first book was 1942. I believe it was Seventeen Summer. And this was Consider the first YA novel, okay? It was a romance, mainly written for girls. And then, you know, not not too much is happening. And by the time you hit the 1970s and you're getting people like Robert Cormier, you know, with um, The Chocolate War, and Lois Duncan, who, who wrote some very um, scary <laughs> stories, suspense stories, and, of course, Judy Blume. So you had authors writing books that really pushed the envelope but touched on concerns that that young people have and were probably not really able to confront in, in books written for them because basically you just went from elementary school to high school where you would be reading adult books, you know, classics for adults.
1: A couple of interesting points you bring up. First of all, I think of the authors you mentioned, like Lois Duncan, Robert Cormier, etc., Judy Bloom. Mm -hmm. These aren't high-concept books. These people weren't writing books that you could describe in two sentences. I mean, you could, but you'd be missing the larger conversation and the context and the complexity of what was going on in these books.
0: Good point. Exactly. Because I think they, they mirrored life. Uh, which is which is not you know high concept there, <laughs> right. is life is not high concept life, yeah exactly very good and,
1: quote and then I, I also think that the point you made about the funding for libraries being handled differently then and the idea that there were lots of regional libraries that were looking to expand their their offerings
0: mm-hmm,
1: and mm-hmm. to make um, literature accessible to more than just adults who were already inclined to read at that time mm-hmm
0: What happened was, you know, they had children's book section and the adult section, and you had books that were uh, like Robert Cormier. Where are you going to put a book like that? It's not really for seven- or eight-year-olds, and so what they began to do in many libraries was to have a separate location for the YA. The teenagers would much rather not be with, you know, the younger children when they're searching for their books, and that that seemed to have worked really well, and now, um, if I can skip ahead, you know, to the to the golden age we're in now of YA, it probably started around uh, 2000, you know, with uh, actually Harry Potter was interesting because it was, the first book was not really what you would call a YA book except for length, and uh, I guess there are some certain frightening parts in it, but what the young people who began reading that book did was to grow up with the character over the years. And um, so it's really, you know, kind of in the in the YA section now. With Harry Potter and the Hunger Games, um, you you really started um, another golden age of YA. And it's happened that the people who started with the, these books continue to read uh, young adult books. And some publishers have even come up with the idea of new adult, so that... Um, 25-year-olds and 30-year-olds don't feel as if they're reading children's books. They're actually, you know, reading um, new adult books. I'm a
1: new adult. Please, yeah, are you a new ex- adult? <laughs> excuse me while I read this this volume, Divergent 7.
0: Yeah. No, anyway,
1: um, i uh-huh. Okay, so... Today, a young adult or new adult book can be the springboard for an entire series. It can, be, uh, it can lead to a multi-million dollar movie deal, as we've oh, seen yeah. with things like The Maze Runner and Divergent. But these things weren't on anybody's radar. In the late 60s, early 70s, when Cormier, Bloom, Mm-mm. Paul Zindel, these other authors were writing, they never conceived of the fact... Paul Zindel did have a movie adaptation made of the effect of gamma rays on Man and the Moon miracles. He did.
0: He did.
1: But it was more of an art film. It wasn't
0: really, you know, it wasn't intended oh, to be wasn't. a blockbuster. Yeah, it wasn't for the, the masses. It wasn't a big production at all. It's a very thoughtful one.
1: And something else that I learned about the paperback revolution was... The low shipping cost and the ease of putting them in spinner racks suddenly made paperbacks available in drugstores and mm-hmm. at train stations mm-hmm. and places that previously hadn't bothered to carry any kind of significant
0: reading. And there were good titles too. It wasn't you know just just more or less the pulp fiction or or, or, or romances or mm-hmm. other titles. It was it was classics too that you could you could find uh, at the at the um, drugstore as you say. <laughs> yeah. We didn't have a bookstore in the town that. I grew up in. Yeah. Um, but there was a drugstore.
2: <laughs>
1: uh-huh. And did they have a spinner rack of paperbacks? They did.
0: They did. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And
1: so for 35 cents, maybe you could end up acquiring a book that could become a lifelong <laughs> companion. Juanita Havel is an author and educator who lives in Senoida. There's a link to a reading she recently did for the show on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. It was shortly after my chat with Juanita that I discovered that the name of one of the authors we discussed was correctly pronounced Robert Cormier. That's according to his family in Vermont. I was set straight on the matter by Ann Angel. She's an author and retired educator who lives in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Angel primarily writes biographies for young readers. Her subjects have included Amy Tan, Janis Joplin, and Robert Cormier. This gave me a chance to discuss one of my favorite young adult novels, I Am the Cheese, written by Cormier in 1977.
2: I met him through the chocolate war and proceeded to read I Am the Cheese. And after that, I think the next book I read was After the Fall. And his books were so compelling because they looked at violence in our world unflinchingly and how people can do the right thing and still suffer. And that captivated me because as a teenager, I felt like all of life was suffering. I probably would would have been considered a goth chick if I had been born in the (laughs) 80s. That's kind of where my head was. I loved reading about darkness. I loved reading about hope. And that's the other thing he always did. He ended his novels with, there was a nugget of hope.
1: How is it that Robert Cormier held on to the kind of emotional palette that one needs to remember what it's like to be a teenager or a young person?
2: He was a reporter. He was the stay-at-home dad. He worked from home. So he was surrounded by four children. And even in reporting, he was always aware of how children were being affected by the news and how they were being affected by crimes that were being committed and also by generosity that was in his community. Um, Marianne Jane Bauer, a children's writer, often talks about the way we end up writing uh, from that place where we have a whole, we have a memory of loss it's significant enough that we go back to it again and again. And I know that he grew up working in a comb factory. His father had worked in the comb factory. And he was working in the comb factory when he was just a teenager. So perhaps it was the grittiness of that job just made him settle on always wanting to write about teenagers.
1: It's hard to describe the the mature nature, I think, of his young adult novels to to someone who hasn't read them, a phrase that he's he's very famous for, probably the the single phrase he's most famous for, "Dare to disturb the universe." Yes, and that's a statement that I think has more impact for a young person than someone who's a little more set in their ways. What do you What do you think about "Dare to disturb the universe"?
0: I think that I
2: try to live by it because of <laughs> him. Um, I know that. What I write is heavily influenced by um, writers like Robert Cormier and especially Robert Cormier. I think what he was doing was telling teenagers not to follow the crowd, but to do what they felt was the good thing, the right thing. And so when you dare to disturb the universe, you're not going along blindly with whatever it is that is expected of you. If you see something happening that's wrong, you should work to change it. You should step up.
1: And what sort of real-world stances do you think were influencing Robert Cormier in creating that story?
2: I think there's a lot of political motivation in the things that he wrote. And he wrote The Chocolate War at a time when um, people my age, we were protesting against the Vietnam War while our parents were supporting it and telling us we were being unpatriotic, but we felt the war was unjust. I think he was speaking to our political naivety in thinking that um, we had certain freedoms that we actually don't have. I see that a lot more now, actually, than I did back then when I was reading him.
1: The book that I find most influential was I Am the Cheese, which is Mm -hmm. a journey in search of truth. The ending of I Am The Cheese was such a gut punch to me as I was probably maybe 13. And I immediately had to start exercising <laughs> to, to, in a way, diffuse the nervous energy that that book created. And I was surprised by a couple of details that you put in your book. In the sense that, first of all, he included his real home yeah. phone number in the book and subsequently would get calls from people looking for Amy, the character who was supposed to to own that phone number in the novel. That was funny. But then also the answer sheet that he created to send to young people who wrote in questions about the book. I wish I had known that when I was that age, that I could have gotten some actual information. But the answers are tough, too.
2: Yeah. No, I agree. And like you, I wish I had known that that phone number was real. Um, I would have called it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I definitely would have.
2: Uh, and his wife, long after Robert died, they kept that phone number and they continued to get phone calls.
1: <laughs> but he said never pranks. He, you quote him as saying that he never had anyone call with a malicious intent.
2: I think, that, I think the teenagers who called him were, are seeking truth just like Adam Farmer was seeking truth. Um, especially as teenagers, we're so idealistic. We're looking at the world as very black and white and slowly discovering that it's very gray.
1: But are young readers today getting the chance to discover Robert Cormier?
2: I know that a lot of Catholic schools still require the chocolate war, which is funny because they also still require kids to sell chocolate. (laughs) Anyway, um, I know that... That's really burning the candle at both ends. Yeah, it is. He still continues to show up on the banned books list. And so you would think that if you were a rebellious teen, that would be the first place you'd go to look for a book and you would read The Chocolate War and I Am the Cheese, at least, um, because both of those were heavily banned books. And in fact, he was a spokesperson for the First Amendment his entire life.
1: Thanks to author and angel. Next, here's an excerpt from the beginning of Robert Cormier's I Am the Cheese, as read by Toussaintine Ben Wexler. Ben is a member of the Literacy Connects Youth Center, and in real life, he looks like the spitting image of the book's central character, Adam
3: Farmer. I'm riding the bicycle, and I'm on Route 31 in Monument, Massachusetts, on my way to Rutterburg, Vermont. And I'm pedaling furiously, because this is an old-fashioned bike, no speeds, no fenders, Only the warped tires and the brakes that don't always work and the handlebars with cracked rubber grips to steer with. A plane bike, the kind my father rode as a kid years ago. It's cold as I pedal along. The wind like a snake slithering up my sleeves and into my jacket and my pant legs too. But I keep pedaling. I keep pedaling. This is Mechanic Street in Monument and to my right, high above the hill, there's a hospital and I glance up at the place and I think of my father in Rutterburg, Vermont. And my pedaling accelerates. It's 10 o'clock in the morning, and it's October. Not a Thomas Wolfe October of burning leaves and ghost winds, but a rotten October. Dreary, cold, and damp, with little sun and no warmth at all. Nobody reads Thomas Wolfe anymore, I guess, except my father and me. I did a book report on the web and the rock, and Mr. Parker in English too regarded me with suspicion and gave me a B instead of the usual A. But Mr. Parker and the school and all of that are behind me now, and I peddle. Your legs do all the work on an old bike like this, but my legs feel good, strong, with staying power. I pass by a house with a white picket fence and I spot a little kid who's standing on the sidewalk and he watches me go by. And I wave to him because he looks lonesome and he waves back. I look over my shoulder, but there's no one following. At home, I didn't wave goodbye to anybody. I just left without fanfare. I didn't go to school. I didn't call anyone. I thought of Amy, but I didn't call her. I woke up this morning and saw an edge of frost framing the window, and I thought of my father. And I thought of the cabinet downstairs in the den, and I lay there, barely breathing. And then I got up and I knew where I was going, but I stalled. I delayed. I didn't leave for two hours because I'm a coward, really. I'm afraid of a thousand things, a million. Like, is it possible to be claustrophobic and yet fear open spaces too? I mean, elevators panic me. I stand in an upright coffin and my body oozes sweat and my heart pounds and this terrible feeling of suffocation threatens me and I wonder if the doors will ever open. But the next day I was playing center field. I hate baseball, but the school insists on one participating sport. Anyway, I stood there with all that immensity of space around me in center field and I felt as though I'd been swept off the face of the planet into space. I had to fight a desire to fling myself on the ground and cling to the earth. And then (laughs) there are dogs. I sat there in the house, thinking of all the dogs that would attack me on my way to Rudderburg, Vermont. And I thought to myself, this is crazy, I'm not going. But at the same time, I knew I would go. I knew I would go the way you know a stone will drop to the ground if you release it from your hand.
1: Thanks to Ben Wexler for that reading. The effect of gamma rays on man-in-the-moon marigolds. My darling, my hamburger. I never loved your mind. Pardon me, you're stepping on my eyeball and The Undertaker's Gone Bananas. You can't say that author Paul Zendel didn't have a flair for good titles. Zendel died in 2003, but the books he wrote in his heyday are unlike anything else I've read. Here to demonstrate is middle schooler Henry Anaker. He'll be reading the opening paragraphs to Zendel's 1977 novel, Confessions of a Teenage Baboon, in character as the sharp-eyed Chris Boyd. Henry is part of the Literacy Connects Youth Center and has also been a fan of NPR since he was seven years old.
4: I'm just going to tell you the story of the way it happened, and I'm afraid it's going to shock a few people. Most of what I'm going to confess has to do with when I was 15 years old, but I'm 16 now, so I'm not as demented as I was then. First of all, you've got to know that I'm from Staten Island, which is a piece of land surrounded by water just south of the Statue of Liberty. It's sort of a geographical version of a detached retina. We really like each other on Staten Island. Although, once in a while, some folks will borrow car parts from each other without asking. And there's a little breaking and entering that goes on. Also, ten years ago, a seven-year-old girl knocked off her parents with a kitchen knife while they were sleeping. But that was an exception. We also have a zoo with the only albino python on the eastern seacoast. You can go at three o'clock in the afternoon and watch them feed it the most expensive, succulent, toxified rats. What I'm going to confess to you is so mind-boggling, it may haunt you for the rest of your life. So this is a warning to any kids with a heart condition out there. My story has torment, fights, and at least one good car crash. In fact, if they make this book into a movie, that's what I want to call it. Torment, fights, and at least one good car crash. But to be more specific, my story has terrible things in it and I want to tell you all, straight off, that they're all true. It also has my mother in it, and she is what is known as a small-time shoplifter. She doesn't steal diamonds or payrolls or or knock off banks or anything. She just takes little things like stamps, cans of chicken soup, and jars of chunky peanut butter. Then there's this other important character in the book by the name of Lloyd Departy, who's a drunken shipyard worker, and he does some things that get him into a lot of trouble. And there are some cops in this story who do some very violent things because they can get away with it on Saturn Island. The last thing I've got to tell you is there are things done to me in this story that aren't very nice. But I'm going to tell you anyway, because maybe some of you will learn something from them. You never know. Maybe there are some of you as ashamed and mixed up as I was, and don't know how to handle the problems of being alive that people don't warn us about. And that's the main reason I'm writing this confession. Because I don't think we should go on keeping quiet about these things. All the lying has to stop somewhere, you know? The only thing that's going on in my mind is that I hope when you finish reading this, you won't hate me. Please don't despise me for being the one to tell you the days of being Huckleberry Finn are gone forever.
1: Thank you, Henry. Lots of folks at ACPM say hi back. Here now to discuss our shared enthusiasm for Paul Zindel is critically acclaimed author A.S. King. Based in Pennsylvania, King has had 14 books published to date, including *Dig*, which was awarded the Michael L. Prince Award for Excellence in Young Adult Literature. She also teaches and travels the world talking to teens about real issues in their lives. It was a chance discovery of an interview that King did about Zendel's Confessions of a Teenage Baboon that made me realize we were kindred spirits. But A.S. King explains, it was another Zendel book that first got her attention.
5: I'm pretty sure Seventh Grade, The Pig Man was our required novel. And I read it, I liked it, and I went to the library. I think I heard that My Darling, My Hamburger had sex in it so i decided i would read that i'm not even sure if it does anymore i have that copy still from the library in fact i stole every pauls and dale book from the library um, you feel yep you know, and I, I do a lot of um, library conferences, librarian conferences all over the country, and I have admitted this to people openly that I stole those books. And the thing, thing is, the, the books I have sitting in front of me right now are those books. I still have the original Confessions of a Teenage Baboon from that library, and I've read it so many times that the whole spine is held together with packing tape and got shape and all kinds of other things.
1: Well, you mentioned hearing that My Darling, My Hamburger had some controversial content that attracted you as a young reader. And for me, it was kind of the same. Um, I have my copy of Confessions of a Teenage Baboon in my hands right now. This is from 1978. And on the cover, it says, this is a warning to any kid with a heart condition. What I'm going to confess to you is so mind boggling, it may haunt you for the rest of your life. I couldn't resist. I mean, I was hooked. That plus the illustration of young Chris standing inside of his father's coat, hanging on a, a hanger, the one article of clothing hanging in an empty closet. There were so many appealing things about this, as if this was something that I was going to gain from as a young person reading it, but I probably shouldn't tell the adults in my life that I was reading it.
5: Well, I had already, like, I'd read a lot around, like, the age group that this was meant for, I suppose. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I was reading middle grade books, and this was what were they considered young adult. I think that's probably more like it. Hmm. Um, and so, because it was my first step into it in seventh grade, I'd never really read anything quite like it. Mind you, I'd already read all the Flowers in the Attic books, which are just definitely things that your parents didn't want you to read. Right? right.
1: They were a real milestone of the era and a rite of passage, particularly for a lot of young women readers.
5: The biggest thing with Zindel that pulled me in was the fact that he always had well not always, but usually had an adult character that had quite a lot of screen time. And those adult characters were not perfect. That was rare because either adult characters were missing or perfect, whether they be in television shows or you know, they make the odd mistake, but I mean his his were very flawed. You weren't supposed to ever think adults were flawed. Like at that age, at 12, 13, 14, you were supposed to at least not tell them anyway or not indicate that you thought they were flawed, which of course is hilarious because you're entering the years where all you're going to do is tell the adults in your life that they were
1: flawed. I think for me, what it was about his novels was the sense of independence in his books. I was really drawn to the books that depicted adolescents on journeys. The books I was interested in were about young people who were forging a path of their own, often a secretive path. And I think mm. Chris's uh, internal dialogue is very much a secret from his mother. They're mm-hmm. close, but she doesn't really understand who Chris is becoming as he grows up. And you mentioned the importance of adult characters in Zindel's writing. I think Lloyd Departy is a great example of a character who does depart some wisdom to Chris, but he also serves as a warning sign um, mm-hmm. of what not to be and how yes. not to be as an adult.
5: Between... The parents who were not perfect, right? And, and then these other adults who were sometimes kind of diabolical, I would definitely say that Lloyd party has some real problems. But he also, like you said, did help Chris in a way um, in a place where his mother couldn't, whether that was a discussion or whether that was an exploration of the fact that Chris lost his father and needed a male role model. I don't know, um, but the adult characters in his books kind of changed my life, too, and they also they, they made me feel seen in a weird way, even though none of, I can't say either of those two characters, his mother or Lloyd Departy, resembled anyone in my life. There was no other books like them. I mean, that was, that was the biggest thing for me. Now, I hadn't found Cormier. I hadn't found um, I hadn't found anybody else like him. In fact, the next person that pulled me in after Zindel was those Kurt Vonnegut. Um, and that was many years later. So I just kept rereading the same novels over and over again. And that probably helped me kind of form my voice as a writer, too.
1: Another literary figure that you and I share in very high regard is Kerr Vonnegut, who one of my favorite quotes of his, and I'm paraphrasing, is that he felt like a lot of his books were just him nudging people in the ribs saying, hey, are you are you getting this too? Are are you seeing this? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? <laughs> When I read that as a, as a young person, it, it made him seem so lovable and so approachable to me, <clears throat> you know, that he wasn't telling me what to think or how to think. He was he was asking me for my for my counsel. <laughs>
5: what, an, what an interesting way to put it. I, I, I made a speech years ago and I talked about how my mother, when I was a kid, she would this is how she would start discussions. Night. She'd be sitting there reading the newspaper. She'd say, come here, come here, come here. And she'd point to it. She'd say, read that. And then you'd read it. And she said, so what do you think of that? That was her favorite thing. What do you think about that? <laughs> and then you'd, you'd sit and you'd have a conversation about it. And I think it's one of the best things in the world. And it's also how I like to write as well. I don't. I don't like to tie things up in neat little bows. I like to throw it all out there and, and make a reader think. I don't know. I, I said to somebody recently, like, you can't see it, but right inside my heart is this book. You don't understand what, how this changed my life and how I. I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to become what I am now. So that's pretty cool.
1: Thanks to my guest authors, A.S. King, for helping me to create this particular show, Ann Angel, and Juanita Havel for their warm and friendly conversation. Thanks also to Sharon O'Brien and Dallas Thomas from Stories That Soar, and Ben and Henry from the Literacy Connects Youth Center. You can find longer versions of these interviews at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. Our interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.
0: Thank you to Arizona Theatre Company for their support of
2: Arizona Public Media.